Have you ever been so wrong about something that when you realized you were wrong, it hit you like a ton of bricks? This happened to me like several times in the last few weeks. And um, it's, it's actually great. It's great. I mean, if you get up from that, if you get like up from being hit with a ton of bricks, you feel good afterwards, you know, once you recover. So I've been terribly, terribly uh, misguided on something, and it took one, one brother, one uh, verse that a brother shared with me to convince me I was wrong. Um, and it's funny, because you get into these debates with people, and you're so sure that you're right, and you, you're rationalizing, and you're justifying, and you're using all the, the forces of, um, of logic to convince yourself that you're right. And then a brother comes along and corrects you with just a chapter and verse. So I'll read you the chapter and verse, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what I was wrong about, how I was wrong, how I got it wrong, how we tend to get things wrong. And then I'll dive a little bit into what this says about God specifically and what this, what, what this says about man in relation to God. So the verse was Titus chapter 1, verse 2. And it says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So it's saying that we have a hope of eternal life and God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Before the world began, Lord promised us, the elect, eternal life. So my buddy Patrick sent me this verse in response to something I said where I thought I was being so clever. I'd searched through the Bible for the words, the phrase, God can't. And technically, nowhere in the Bible do those words appear. God can't does not appear anywhere in the Bible. But right here, it says, God, that cannot lie. So we know that God cannot lie because the Bible says so right here. And I was, I was right technically, but I was wrong in fact. And this is something that we can be. We can be correct technically. We can be correct ontologically, right? Like in truth, in being, the words God can't aren't in the King James Bible. But I wasn't right in fact, in truth, because the words God cannot lie, that cannot lie, are right there in Titus. And I thanked Patrick for sending me that verse because it changed, <coughs> changed my entire viewpoint and it sent me on a path of study that has since uh, given me a deeper understanding of God and I hope that I can share it a little bit with you. But first I want to tell you where it all began. It all began several hundred years ago with a philosopher who we probably have all heard of but maybe haven't read. His name's Thomas Aquinas. And he is known, best known for a piece that he wrote called the Summa Theologicae, which is a big document, sort of, and pretty difficult to read. But the five, there are five points made in this document, and they're all arguments for God. And one of the arguments for God is that we live in a changing world, and there's cause and effect. And if you extrapolate from the present state of things that everything that exists as it exists today must have been caused by something that came before it, there must be some unchanging thing at the base of that chain of causation. And so the, that is sort of one way of putting the three 
first ways the, the, the three, three of the five arguments that Thomas Aquinas is making. I'm not going to go into those specifically because they're sort of irrelevant. But the, the relevant part is that I was rebelling against this idea of putting God in a box, right? Saying God can't change. And I said, my, my view of it at the time was that you can't say that God can't change. God, by definition, can do anything. God is all-powerful. There is nothing outside of the realm of God. God, through his own will and volition, might choose not to change, but he cannot not do anything. So the distinction there being having volition, having will, being, being able to do something and making a decision, or not being able to do something. And so in my view at the time, God had the capability, the capacity to change, but he chose not to. Spoiler alert, I was wrong. Uh, I was really, really wrong. I was so wrong uh, on this question that uh, when I realized how wrong I was, it just was incredible. Like, there's so much that I did not understand. And this is such an old idea. People have been thinking about what this is called, this concept is called the immutability of God. Okay, this is an attribute of God that people have been thinking about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And most of them are smarter than me. And the fact that it took me 27 years to get to the point where I realized that I was so stupidly wrong on this point um, is, is, is proof of man's mutability. So what does it mean to be mutable? This is something that comes up a lot in computer science. It's very simple. To be mutable means to be subject to change. Okay, In computer science, if you have a variable that's mutable, it means you can change the value of the variable. In the- theology, mutable character, uh, uh, mut- to be mutable, man being mutable means that man changes. And we know that man changes because the very first people on the planet change. So to understand that, I think we're going to turn all the way back to Genesis. You all know I love Genesis, uh, the first few chapters of Genesis. I'm uh, enthralled with these stories that are so deep and ancient and, and rich in truth and Uh, telling about the human psychology that still sits with us today. And we're in chapter 3, and we know that Eve and Adam were told by God not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. More subtle means more clever, more cunning. And hath God said, this is the serpent asking Eve, saying unto the woman, Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It starts with a question. We, ask, we are asked a question by the serpent, this representative of Satan. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. You don't know that you'll die. It's not guaranteed. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, that your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, And a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, 
and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And so there's a few things here. There's the rationalization, the justification that the serpent is placing in the mind of Eve. There is the woman responding to her senses and to her sense of rationality. She hears this argument and she convinces herself that it's right. She looks at the fruit. She has a sensual experience of the fruit. She sees that it's good for food. She sees that it's pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So there's sort of three steps here. One is a rationalization by uh, the, what, we, what happens is we make an idol out of logic. We make an idol out of reason. And we can reason our way into any crime, any heinous act. And this is shown over and over in history and also in literature. Just yesterday I was listening to a great podcast that describes the Cold War and how people in the middle of the night would be taken out of their homes and taken to a building in the middle of Moscow called the Lubyanka where they would be shot in the basement for being out of lockstep with the Communist Party. And of course there were people executing this crime and of course these people were rationalizing some way in their head a reason that this was acceptable to murder literally 10,000 people in the basement of the Capitol building in Moscow. But this is how it works. This is how it works for all of us. When we are wrong about something, we are wrong because we are subject to the prince of the air, the spirits of this world. The, you know, it says that the devil is the prince of this world and that, he is, that we are really subject to uh, that force of evil and rationality that he puts in our minds and to our senses. We believe our senses. We believe our lying eyes. So the serpent reasons with Eve, convinces Eve to eat of the apple. She participates in this evil act, and then she shares the evil act with her husband. It doesn't stop with Eve. All evil has a ripple effect. She did not trust God. She trusted her own lying eyes. She trusted the snake of reason. And just like Eve, when I was wrong about the, mutability, the immutability of God, I was wrong because I was trusting my feelings on the matter and I was trusting my sense of rationality, of logic, of, well, I don't think that it's... And to be fair, it, some of it comes from a good place, right? I fear the Lord. I wouldn't want to put the Lord in a box. And in doing so, I make, would make statements that were just patently untrue and demonstrably false according to Scripture. And I, I want to almost make the argument that it is possible to put God in a box and not only possible, but it's necessary. Now, not, and again, this is, it's always important to make a distinction between uh, what is true in uh, like material reality. Obviously God is way beyond our comprehension. Um, he is indescribably great and powerful. We cannot literally put him in a box, but we can categorically put him in a box, meaning we can separate certain things that are in the world from things that are of God. We know that evil is not of God. We know that temptation is not of God. We know that sin is not of God. These things we decide because we read scripture, we, 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 we create a separation uh, categorically, intellectually, mentally um, between these concepts. And that's what people mean when they say, don't put God in a box. What they mean is don't 
describe God in terms of attributes that can be pinned down. But the truth is that God wants us to know him. And in order to know him, we must be able to make truth claims about God. And truth claims necessarily prevent other things from being true. So how does this lead us to Christ? Where does Christ play a role in all this? Well, we're going to turn to Malachi chapter 3. Because Malachi chapter 3 is one of the prophecies of Jesus Christ that is the most well-known to all of us. And it's also the chapter wherein God categorically states, without a doubt, I change not. But we'll start from the top because this chapter is so moving to me personally. And I think in general, it is how Christ works in our lives. So he says, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare a way before me. That's speaking about John the Baptist. And he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord whom ye seek, that's Christ, shall come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. This is a prophecy that comes true in the New Testament. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. And they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and the false swearers and the adulterers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So what is this about? This is about the coming of Christ about Christ purging iniquity from his people, about him purifying his people, purifying his church, making us conform to his image through the grace that he works in our heart. This is about the judgment of Christ, the judgment on the sorcerers and adulterers, the false swearers and those who oppress the hireling, those who oppress the widows and the fatherless. And finally, it's about God and his inability to break a promise. He says, I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons are Jacob. Ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I've made a promise to this people and I will not break that promise. I cannot break that promise. My word is bond. And in Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not a man that he should die, neither the son of man that he should repent. There are many examples in the Bible where God responds to human will, to prayer. But that's not God changing in nature. That's God fulfilling his promise to be in relationship with his people. Yesterday, in Hebrews chapter 2, when we were speaking, it, it says that God had to come in the form of Jesus Christ so that he could suffer and relate with us. That in death, he was made perfect. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 28 say, Of old... 
hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall not perish, but shall endure, yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, and the vesture shall change, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. And the children of thy servants shall, and their seed shall be established before thee." The world changes, man changes, the creation changes, but the creator does not change. And finally, to close this out, I'm going to circle this back to where we began with the story of Eve, which is that we know that man is mutable. We know that even when man was in his finest hour, when he walked with the Lord, when he had sinned not, he was still subject to change because so easily he was convinced by the serpent to eat of the apple of the tree. And the angels are mutable. We know that they have fallen. They fell. So God must be unchanging. God must be eternal. God must be immutable. Because if he was not, then what would we have to look at? What would be the rock that we hide in? Where would the cleft reside? It would be not something we could rely on, but something that could change. God cannot change. God has promised that he does not change. He has promised that he cannot change. It is the nature of God that he is immutable. It is the nature of fallen man and fallen angels that we are. Appreciate what Brother Danny's brought forth and desire and interest in your prayers the time that I stand before you this morning. I'd like to go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We had, as we mentioned, a great service in New York. And on the way back, uh, this was uh, part of the discussion that uh, Brother Danny and I talked about. And so I'd like to, uh, starting in John chapter 3, look at some verses right here. This is, uh, this is uh, real important to me because it is not what I was taught early on to believe about God saving his people. When I grew up, uh, I've mentioned to you that the pastor of the church that we attended scheduled a meeting with my mother when I was 11 years of age. And... The purpose of the meeting was to explain to me the plan of salvation. And I remember it, not a lot of things I remember, but I remember that meeting. Now remember that there were several important points in order to obtain salvation. Number one, I needed to hear the gospel. Number two, I needed to believe the gospel. Number three, I needed to make a profession of my faith publicly before a church family. And number four, in order to secure my home in heaven, I needed to follow in gospel baptism. And I remember those were the four points that were specifically emphasized that I needed to do. And there was sort of a catch-all that I needed to do it by the time I turned 12 years of age. Because I had up until that time, there was a special grace that 
covered my sins and secured my home of eternity and salvation. But when I turned 12 years of age, then that was defined as the age of accountability. And I remember the first question or thought that came to my mind when this was explained to me. Now, keep in mind, if you've never heard anything else, then you're very interested in heaven and you want to secure your home in heaven. But I remember the first thought that came to mind was, you mean I haven't been accountable for my sins up to this point? Like, is there a free for all for sin to sin all you want to before you reach 12 years of age and it's not held to your charge? And I remember in my mind questioning, well, what about the unborn that die before they're born? Or what about those that are mentally challenged that might not be able to hear the gospel? That might not have the ability to respond. Or I thought, what about those that are physically impaired and not able to experience the mode of gospel baptism? Now, you know, we believe in baptism. We just experienced it last week, a wonderful baptism. But it wasn't for the purpose of securing Cody's home in heaven. It was an evidence of what God had done in the heart of Brother Cody. And all of those things that I was taught were very important. They're very important, but they're not for the purpose of securing our home in heaven. I remember the discussion about what about the infant? What about the unborn? What about the individual that is unable physically to hear? And I remember someone telling me about Helen Keller. She had a knowledge of God before she actually was communicated about God. Well, how is that? And it's been explained away by some folks or justified and explained by some that God has a variety of ways in how he saves a people. Well, I believe he does, but I believe the basis for the way that God saves people, he saves all of us, whether it is the infant, whether it is the unborn, whether it is the person that's mentally challenged or the person that's not able to experience the physical mode of gospel baptism, God saves us all the same way by his grace. But also the agent of our salvation does not hinge on gospel baptism. The agent of our salvation is not hinged on the preacher or the evangelist. The agent of our salvation does not depend on the gospel that's proclaimed. Now, I'm a firm believer in preaching the gospel. If I wasn't, I wouldn't go to New York twice a month and go to Colombia and go to New Mexico and be here every Sunday. I'd probably be in Hawaii. I mean, you know, that I haven't been there yet. I want to go there before I die. But 
Probably that would interest me. In fact, you all gave me a, a ticket there I, I'm still planning for. But there's a purpose in preaching the gospel. But I have, I've never felt like that my ability or inability to preach the gospel was going to affect somebody's salvation. So let's look at John chapter 3. And I want to just really touch on some points because this is a, this is a, a, a critical point that we should understand what the scriptures teach about it and see if our thinking is in line with what God's word has to say. So John chapter three, verse one says, there's a man of, of, of the Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God for no man can do these miracles except that thou doest, except God be with him. All right. He already had some knowledge of God. He had some insight about God. He had some interest in Christ. And here's Christ begins to explain it. Christ says to Nicodemus, he says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a a man is born again, he cannot see see the kingdom of God, nor does he have an interest in the kingdom of God, nor in the things of God, nor in God's word, God's ways, anything about God. You rejoiced in what brother Danny taught you about God this morning, because you have an interest in God. If you, so we can almost turn this around and read it To where it it almost makes the point right here. He says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we can almost understand it this way. That if you see the kingdom of God. If you have an interest in God and his word and his gospel. Then you're born again. Because you can't see it unless you're born of God. Well, now all of a sudden Nicodemus perked up and he asked the question and he said, well, you're saying that, that, that a man has to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how in the world can this happen? I mean, Michael, it'd be about like you thinking, you know, I, I, I'm told I have to be born again and you'd be saying, I'm a big grown strapling man. How in the world am am I going to be born again? I mean, that's, that's about how Nicodemus responded to it. And he said, how can this be? How is it that I could be born again? I mean, isn't that a legitimate question? How can I be born again? And he said, he said, how can a man be born when he's old? Well, first of all, let me ask you this question right here. What did you have to do with your first birth? What did you have to do with it? You're very passive in it. 
In fact, you were actually born before you probably knew that you were born or had any understanding of it. And it was all taken care of by somebody else. Look what he says right here. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man, when he be born again, when he's old? That's a legitimate question. When, when you're told you've got to be born again. And then Nicodemus, you know, in his mind, he's thinking, how can a man, when he's old, enter in again into his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus is not questioning that he has to be born again, but Nicodemus is saying, how can it be? How can we experience this second birth? Now, this begins to teach us that there are, for the child of God, there are two births that we experience. If, if, we, if we experience the first birth, we, it is very possible. It is very possible that we might not experience the first birth, but experience the second birth. It is also possible, and we have indication that there are some that experience the first birth and don't experience the second birth. The first birth is the natural birth that these mothers have had with these wonderful children that are here. That's the first birth that we experience. Yet we have indication and scriptures that teach us that even John, as the example of John was made to rejoice while he was in his mother's womb. So we have indication right there that John experienced the second birth, the spiritual birth, before he experienced the first birth, the natural birth. His spiritual birth came before that. That's the indication that the scriptures teach us. So Nicodemus says, how in the world can this be? How can this happen? And Jesus answers, and he says unto him, Verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, of spiritual water, of spiritual, of the life-giving water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So he begins to define what this second birth is about. It is a spiritual birth. So if we have to experience and it's necessary that we experience a spiritual birth, then what do we do to get it? How do we get it? He gives us an example right here. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the first natural birth that we all have experienced if we're here this morning. But he says that which is born, and he mentions the second birth, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So he says there's a natural birth and there's a spiritual birth. And then he says right here. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And then he begins to give us some insight into how this second birth occurs and how that we have absolutely zero control on when it happens and how it happens. 
but we can see the evidence of it. Let's look what he says right here. He says, marvel not, don't be surprised, don't be amazed. This is Christ talking. That I said unto you, you must be born again. And then he gives us some insight right here. Of all the things that he could tell us. To describe this spiritual birth, he uses something so insignificant as the wind. Now, you'd think he could use other things, but this is what Christ chose to use. And there's some characteristics about the wind that apply to this second spiritual birth. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Okay, let me ask you a question. Who's in charge of the wind? I mean, everybody knows who's in charge of the wind. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. He's describing the wind. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but thou canst not tell from whence it cometh or whither it goeth. And then he says, so is every one that is born the second birth of the spirit. So this last week I had a cousin in West Texas that was having a very serious cancer surgery. She'd been diagnosed with two types of cancer and it was very, very serious. And so I flew into Dallas and I drove about an hour west of Dallas and I picked up my oldest cousin. And when I picked her up, the wind was blowing. It's in a little, little bitty town called Cisco, Texas. And we took off from there for a three-hour trip to West Texas. And when I picked her up, I said, boy, it sure is a windy day. I said, you know what that means if we get to West Texas and the wind is still blowing. She knew because she grew up there. We grew up on the plains, the flatlands of West Texas. And what it meant was that there was going to be a terrible, terrible dust storm. I was already dreading it. I, I was dreading it. I, I don't like dust storms. I grew up in them, and they're just not anything pleasant about them at all. And sometimes the dust is so bad that the streetlights come on in the daytime. You, your car is sandblasted. The tumbleweeds are blowing across the road, and you're dodging the tumbleweeds. And that's common in West Texas when you have a dust storm. And I can remember as a kid when the dust would blow, I'd get upset. And I'd want the dust to stop or the wind to stop. But you know what? No matter how upset I got, no matter how many times I called out to try to get the dust or the wind to stop blowing, it never stopped on my accord. Here's something about the wind. You don't have any control over the wind. I don't have any control over it. I do remember one time I was 29 years old driving down through University Avenue and the dust was blowing so bad. It's 11 o'clock in the morning that the streetlights came on and it had been blowing for several days. And I remember at the stoplight saying, Lord, please, before I die, can I live someplace that the dust doesn't blow? <laughs> and the Lord answered my prayer within the next year. I was headed to Maryland. And so far, I've not seen a sandstorm. But here's some characteristics right here that he uses in the comparison of our eternal life. First of all, you don't have any control over it. Now, if it was dependent upon the preacher or the gospel, if that had anything to do with it at all, then I've got, I have a little bit of control over where I go and when I go. I probably will go to Columbia this afternoon. 
That's because I made a decision to go to Columbia. Probably either myself or Brother Danny or both will speak and bring the message. But that would be myself having some control even over the travels of going there and all the things that might distract us along the way in getting there. We might get there and the building's locked or we might get there and nobody shows up. Is that going to affect somebody's eternal salvation? I don't think so. He says right here, the wind bloweth where it listeth. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effect of the wind. When the wind's blowing out in West Texas, it stirs up a whole lot of dust and you can see the effect of the wind. He says right here, You can hear the wind. He says, and thou hearest the sound thereof. You can hear the wind. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but thou canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. And he says, so is everyone that's born of the spirit. What you can see of the wind is the effect of the wind. What you can see of the wind when you go outside and see the flags that are blowing in the air. That's the effect of the wind. And what you can see regarding the spiritual life of a child of God is the effect of the spirit. The spirit is what quickens and gives life completely. Aside from our baptism, aside from the preacher, aside from reciting something or even saying Yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You ought to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know, before we baptize folks, almost always I ask folks if they have a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, because if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, they don't have any business being baptized. They don't need to be worshiping here at Mount Carmel if they don't believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus Christ is our hope. If you don't have a hope in Christ, then I hope and pray that God blesses you to have a hope in Christ someday. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but thou canst not tell from whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that's born of the spirit of God. That spiritual birth comes from God. And it now, now we talked about this yesterday. It's very likely. God is sovereign. God is, that's one one point that we all agree on, is that God is sovereign and God is in control and God is in charge. And it is very possible. It is very possible that when the gospel's preached or when a preacher is discussing the gospel with someone else, it is very possible that God may grant spiritual life at that time. And if that were the time in my case, then I would probably think, I'd probably think that it had something to do with the gospel. But did you know that I wouldn't even respond to the gospel? I wouldn't even appreciate the gospel. In fact, I wouldn't have a hearing ear for the gospel if I didn't have that spirit that God put in my heart. I believe that when God plants his spirit in our heart, he does it just like that. 
there's a great example. There's a great example in uh, Ezekiel about, and I'm not going to go into all of it, but uh, it's in Ezekiel chapter 37, and it talks about the valley of dry bones, and and Ezekiel has a vision right here, and he talks about the valley of dry bones, and he says uh, that they came together, and he comes on down, and it says that the, that they were they were youth, useless, they were they were helpless, they were dead, they were completely dead. Until the spirit spoke the life-giving voice and said, live. And when the spirit spoke the life-giving voice and said, live, immediately there was life. That life-giving voice did not come by the preacher. It did not come through the preacher. It was the spirit of God directly touching the heart of the individual. And he tells us in Hebrews chapter 8, he says, he says, one of my favorite verses. Now, I didn't always understand this, and I didn't always, I was like Brother Danny mentioned, I, I was way off base. I didn't understand it. I didn't appreciate it. I've had a lot of doubts about a lot of things, but once the Lord opened my eyes to the way that he saves people, that's one thing I haven't had doubts about. It's all him and zero to do with me. Hebrews chapter 8 tells us, he says, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Now let me ask you, what is the gospel? Gospel's good news. Gospel's good news about Jesus Christ. Then why in the world aren't we supposed to tell other people to know the Lord? He's talking about this spiritual life that we experience right here. He says, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. He says, for they shall all know me. Who's the all? The all is everyone that's written in the Lamb's book of life, the elect family of God. He said, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Well, then I'm like Nicodemus. How in the world are we going to know him? How are we going to know him? He says, I, this is where I get real excited. He says, I, not the preacher, not the parent, not the deacon. But he says, I will write my laws in their hearts and in their mind. And he says, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. He sovereignly does it when he chooses. Now, because he's in the one in, uh, that's in the business of giving spiritual life, it's not a hard thing for him to do it if he chooses to do it while your baby is in the mother's womb. He can, he can grant spiritual life there. Or he can be like David when he said that he was made to hope while he was upon his mother's breast as he was nursing. As David was a nursing infant, he was made to hope upon his mother's breast. It's not a hard thing for the Lord to grant spiritual life at that time. Or it may be at some point in time throughout your life, your journey in life, that God will, will grant you spiritual life. And, and, and you may know the specific time that it is, or it may be like a, a still small voice that the Lord speaks to you. You may have an experience like the Apostle Paul had on the road to Damascus, and it may be a, a tremendous experience, or it may be a still small voice. I, I have to say that I don't, I don't remember a specific time when I had an appreciation for the Lord. I grew up having a heart for the Lord. 
Doesn't mean I've always made the right decisions, always gone the right way, but I had a heart and an appreciation for the Lord. And I can remember visiting my grandparents' house, and they would have these, way back then we had what you called records. That was before cassettes, even before eight tracks, we had records. And my grandparents would take these records and they would play uh, hymns. And I can remember how I would get so uh, excited and full spiritually hearing these hymns as a four and five year old little boy. I'll fast forward just a little bit. When I was about 10, I remember, I don't know how I got it, but somebody gave me a, uh, an eight track cassette player. Anybody ever heard of an eight, eight track player? It's this little, probably Brother Kilby still has some. And, and I can't remember who gave me this, uh, this eight track player, but I was able to get a, a, a tape of him singing. And I was so excited. And I can remember as about 10, 11 years old, I would play those, those songs over and over and over again. And I guess one day it got a little bit loud in the house. My father didn't have the same appreciation for those songs that I did. And I can remember dad coming to the door and he, what, he, he wasn't pleased with what I was doing. And he said, he opened the door. And he said, what are you going to do when you grow up? He said, are you going to get a big car and just take old people to church all the time? And I thought, you know what? That's not such a bad idea. That wasn't necessarily a compliment that he was presenting. But you know what? I've kind of done that a little bit. But all the point that I'm saying is that I believe that I experienced spiritual life at a very early age. And I believe I experienced it before the preacher talked to me. I believe I experienced it before I understood the gospel. I believe I experienced it before I accepted Christ. I believe I experienced it before I knew all about the Lord. Because there was something on the inside. So God is sovereign when he grants spiritual life. Now, we're, we're out of time, but I want to I just hit a couple more verses right here. And I encourage you to go home and read this. Titus chapter 3. So good right here. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 says, verse 3, we'll start. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish. Does this describe any of us right here? Probably describes most of us or all of us. Maybe, maybe not everybody, but it describes a lot of us. For we ourselves also, this is important, he says were. There should be a little bit of improvement as we go along. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That describes our condition aside from God and in the natural man only experiencing the first or natural birth. That describes our condition. So that's where we are. But he says, but after that, after what? 
after this is our course of life, after this is our way of life. It doesn't say that after we chose him, after we accepted him. It doesn't say after we heard the gospel. It doesn't say after we believed in Christ. It says while we're living in this condition. He says after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. God appeared to us while we're in that state, not when we got better. He says, after that, the kindness and love of God appeared, uh, of God our Savior toward man appeared. And then he, he just plugs this in right here. He says, by the way, he says, it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done. Now, we believe in good works. We're taught that we should perform good works. We are created unto good works, but not for the purpose of getting eternal life. He says, it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but he says, according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed upon us abundantly through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So. We are given spiritual life. We are given that spiritual birth and that spiritual life directly by the Holy Spirit. It comes from God. God is in charge of our spiritual birth and God is in charge of when he grants us spiritual birth. Now, the best example that we have. We have multiple examples, and I'll, I'll just wrap it up with this. They're really, really, really good. One of the best examples that we have in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 9, we've got a whole host of really great examples right here. I personally, I'm, I'm slow to learn. It, it takes me a long time, but it helps me a whole lot to learn something if I have an example that I can look to. And right here... We have some examples of how that the gospel, nor the preacher, nor the evangelist, is the instrument of eternal life. Let's look at Acts chapter 8. It says that, I'm just going to, I want you to go home and read it really, really good. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9. It says that Philip, it says that uh, Philip was on a journey. down to Gaza, and it says that he, he saw a man, a, a, an Ethiopian, a, a eunuch, who had come to Jerusalem to worship. Well, now, first of all, we saw that in order to see the kingdom of God, know anything about God, have a desire for God, you must be born of God. So apparently, the eunuch was already born of God. He wouldn't have been going, he wouldn't have been going to worship God, and he wouldn't have been going to learn more about God. And so... It it goes on down to say that Philip joins itself to the chariot of this Ethiopian eunuch. And he said, do you understand what you're reading? Now, that's the purpose of the gospel. When Brother Danny or Brother John or Elder Aquino stand before you, the purpose of the gospel minister is to take God's word and open it up. Is Is to take what we read and open God's word to you. And so the, the eunuch said, I don't understand what I'm reading. He said, how can I understand what I'm reading except some man guide me? That's the purpose of the parent. That's the purpose of the teacher, the pastor teacher. 
is to open God's word. And he began to speak to him and preach to him about Jesus Christ. And then it comes on down and it says that the Ethiopian eunuch says, what hinders me from being baptized? And, and uh, Philip said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord? He said, oh, I, I believe that the Lord is the Lord of my life. I have a hope and a trust and a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says that he took and baptized the eunuch. Now, here's another great example for us. It says that they found the body of water, and it says that they went down into that body of water to baptize. So the last point, and I think this is so good, it says that he and Philip went on his way rejoicing. Every time I've ever experienced a gospel baptism, the individual, the candidate, and the folks that were there went on their way rejoicing. Uh, Brother David Kilby sent me one of the pictures of Brother Cody at his baptism when he came up out of the water, and he was rejoicing. And I sent the message back. I said, that is the evidence of the scripture that says it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Cody was rejoicing. The second one here is the Apostle Paul. It says that the Lord dealt with Paul. It says, suddenly there shined a light from heaven, and the Lord dealt with Paul. And Paul asked, he says, who is this? He says, who art thou? And he said, what am I supposed to do? And when the Lord deals with us, we may not know what to do, but we know that there's something we should do. We know that our life should be different. We know that we should serve God. We may not know all about him. And after Paul had experienced this work of grace in his heart and in his mind, then the spirit of the Lord says to Ananias, he said, Ananias, Ananias was the preacher. And he said, Ananias, I want you to go and, and preach to Paul. And Ananias had some reservation. Ananias says, I, I don't think I want to go to Paul. He said, I've heard about Paul. I, Paul has a reputation that if you're serving God and honoring God, he will uh, apprehend you and cast you into prison. You'll be beaten. And he says, I don't really think I want to go to Paul. Can I go to somebody else? And the spirit of the Lord tells Ananias. And he says, you go to Paul. And he describes him right here. He says, because he's a praying man. If you're a praying man or a praying woman, it is an evidence that you're born of the spirit of almighty God. That was at God's appointed time. It could be in your birth, in your, before you were born. It could be in your youth. Or it could be like the thief on the cross. Doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be the president. Ha- that doesn't have to be the presence. That can be the exception. But it can certainly happen. So you can't, you can't ever look at somebody and say, I don't believe that they're a child of God. Because it very well may be. That God has not planted his spirit in them yet. They may not be manifesting fruits of the spirit. But their name may be written in the Lamb's book of life. And they could be like the thief upon the cross. That on the last day of his life. In fact the last hours of his life. He cried out to the Lord. Said Lord I hope I can live with thee. And he said this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. So God. It's one of the. It's one of the fundamental principles we believe the scriptures teach. It is one of the one of the very basic principles that that is different 
from a lot of religious organizations. Now, you might say, well, does that mean God's not with them? No, not at all. I believe God manifests his presence and works in 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 other churches, other denominations. The apostles went to Christ and they said, they said, what about those folks that are not preaching the way we're preaching? You should rebuke them, Christ, because they're not they're not preaching and teaching the way that we teach. And Christ responded to the disciples and he said, if they're not against us, they're for us. The cause is much greater than having to put folks in a box. But this is a very fundamental principle that if you understand it, it'd be a great blessing to you the rest of your life. That your salvation, my salvation, your new birth, our salvation is because of Christ, but the new birth comes directly from the Holy Spirit. It may be when you're hearing the gospel preached, but it's because the Spirit quickens you that you have an appreciation and an understanding for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you.